You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy latte, Sinead Maripodi. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on Writers Off The Page, where I sit down with authors to find out the story behind their stories and their top tips for getting published. Michelle Bowes is a personal finance writer with over 20 years' worth of experience. She's written countless articles explaining complex financial topics in easy to understand and engaging ways, something I need, and even more about gender inequality when it comes to money. Today, we'll be chatting about her brand new book, Money Queens, a money guide for teenage girls. Michelle Bowes, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Sinead. It's great to be talking to you today. Congratulations on your book. I have to say, this is the book I wish I had when I was a teenager. I still feel like I need it now in my life. Yes, you look, you don't know how many times I've heard that so many uh, older women say, where was this book when I was 15 or 16? So hopefully that's not an issue that today's girls are going to have because, uh, yes, there's a book for them now. So For people who haven't seen Money Queens yet and don't know what it is, I'll get you to tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So um, it's really uh, a personal fine. I hate the word personal finance. It sounds uh, that, that phrase. It sounds so stilted. It's a, <laughs> I, I like to think of it as as the best friend every girl needs as she embarks on her first relationship with money. So it's it's a guidebook. It's a helping hand. It's it's somewhere that you know. There's no stupid questions. Um, we're on your level. It's all about sort of teaching you the basics of what to do with money right from the very beginning because, you know, no one's born knowing this stuff. Everyone has to learn it somewhere. And uh, I think the sooner girls learn it, the better position they're going to be in to, to you know, move forward in their lives with a, a really solid um, grasp on their money and it will give them a lot more control and power over what they can do with their lives ultimately. Why girls specifically? Why not teenagers in general? Well, it's, look, that's an excellent question. And to be perfectly honest with you, it could totally be read by any teenager and they get something out of it. There's stacks of stuff in there that is very gender neutral. Um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, I'm not bashing schools at all. Schools have a very big uh, curriculum agenda to cover, but, but kids just aren't learning this stuff in school. So, you know, there's plenty of scope to teach teens of any gender about money. But the reason I focused on girls particularly is probably a personal one. So I have two teenage daughters myself. Um, they're growing up so fast, you know, they've, they've got their first job, that sort of thing, and they're getting to the point where, you know, in a few years' time they're, they're going to be adults, they're going to be young women out in the world. And I, I suppose, you know, I realised in, in coaching them through the process of getting their jobs and the money things that go along with that that, you know, the situation with women and money is really no better that now than it was when I was a teenager or a young woman, woman. you know, the, the gender gaps when it comes to the gender pay gap or the gender retirement gap at the other end of the scale, they're still, you know, they're still there and they're quite stagnant really. Um, and so I suppose I thought, right, if girls, you know, can learn about this stuff right from their very first job, maybe they'll be in a better position when they're in their 20s to you know, ask for pay rises, demand their worth, um, make sure they save, make sure they've always got a buffer, all of those things that I think, um, you know, is, is useful for anyone, but particularly for women, um, and especially before they get to the point where they have to make decisions around caregiving and mother and motherhood and work, if that is something that's, you know, in, on the cards for them or, or planned for their future. 
because I think um, ultimately that's where so many women, you know, face choices that really do damage their finances ultimately. I know it's interesting you saying about, you know, the school curriculum and what it covers. We were only having the conversation in our house recently. We had now a meeting with a financial advisor and I walked out of it feeling a bit like an idiot. And I like to think of myself as quite switched on. And I'm like, these are just things that I wasn't taught. And I mean, I did economics at school and I did, like, I was in the good maths and all of those things, but I there needs to be just a practical class about life skills, superannuation, things like that, what you need to understand because everyone just signs up to super because it's what you do with your job. You get your tax file number, you sign up for super and you just do it. But knowing how to make it work for you so that by the time you retire, you're actually set up is a whole different ball game. Look, you're absolutely right. And as I said, I don't want to bash bash up schools. The, the, the national curriculum is so vast and teachers are trying to cover so much content that, you know, there really isn't much room for this. And you're right, you know, you know, math is is probably predominantly where where I think financial literacy is covered in schools, but it tends to be very formula-based and there's there's very little there in the way of real life examples of, hey, mm. when would you use a formula for calculating compound interest? You know, what application is that actually going to have in your real life? And I think, you know, your point about studying economics is very valid. You know, the kids that study subjects like commerce or business studies or economics in upper higher school are definitely in a, probably a better position. But those subjects are electives. Uh, so, so many kids don't choose those because that's not their interest or their inclination. And those kids really, you know, if, if you're saying that you studied economics and came out not knowing what you felt like you should know, then there's a whole bunch of kids out there that are really learning a hell of a lot less. So you've got two teenage girls of your own and also a son, is that right? We have to I do, I do mention I he's there as well. Yes, he, he, does, he does exist and, um, and our, he's, he's been reading the book lately. So my teenage girls were um, among my first readers as I was writing because, you know, I was very aware that, you know, I'm a 40 plus woman, I'm writing a book for teenage girls. Um, it needed to be down to earth. It needed not to be patronizing. It needed to be speaking to them in their language without trying too hard, I've got to add. Um, so, so I've got a 16 year old and a 14 year old and they read every chapter as I wrote it and gave me their feedback. Mum, this is too complex. Mum, this is, you know, the, you've got to explain this in a different way. Mum, this could really do with an example to, to bring it to life for people. So they were invaluable just getting their insight into you know how they saw the world and and what things really resonated with them and and look they're pretty sensible girls and they've as I said they've both got you know part-time jobs already in their teens and and you know there's they're saving and they're very aware of money and they've got dreams for the future and things that they want to do so um they're definitely heading in the right direction my 10 year old son was a little miffed initially as to why I was writing a book for girls and not boys and he keeps saying mum are you going to write money kings when's my book coming out <laughs> um but I think you know he's getting older and and I think we have a lot of conversation in our house about equity of all sorts and you know he's beginning to realize that you know maybe the girls do need this help a little bit more but that said you know I've got plenty of friends with teenage sons and I say to them buy the book and read it as well because I'm very much of the belief that for the financial equality that we need to see happen between men and women, that's a journey men need to come on to. You know, all the boys out there need to be aware that these gaps exist 
and need to understand what they can do in the workplace as as colleagues or as as you know employers to to help you know close these gaps or as supportive partners if they're in heterosexual relationships in the future things they need to be aware of to help support their their female partner in in you know the choices that they need to make around caregiving and working potentially I don't know if the pressure's on you or on the pre- or the pressure's on your kids that I feel like having you as a mum and this book, they there's an expectation that they need to be quite good with their finances. I've thought about that and I think the pressure is mutually spread. But um I, yeah, they're, look, they're still they're still in their infancy and they're going to make mistakes, you know, that is part of what life's about. Um and and you know they, they are they are typical kids. No kid listens to their mum. If another adult tells them, they might listen to them a bit more. So occasionally, I have to say, look, I'm speaking to you, you know, as someone who knows about personal finance, not as your mother right now. When I tell you this is how much you should be saving, or this is, you know, I'd really like to make sure that you are saving some money um, and things like that. But look, I think when when it comes down to it, I think that though they they will ask my advice or at least I hope they will <laughs> if they ever get to the situation where they're not sure what to do I mean my 16 year old's already investing which I think is fabulous um and you know I'm helping her through that journey and you know that's been a a really actually really nice thing to sort of bond us together a little bit um so it's it's I think that and I think that that's a really good um point I suppose and another role that I can see this book playing is, you know, if parents read it alongside their kids, it opens up a whole new avenue of conversation. Um, and a lot of parents actually, you know, we've talked about the fact that financial literacy might not be uh, very well taught or, you know, prioritised in schools. But I suppose the other place a lot of kids are going to learn about it if they are going to is at home. But so many parents are quite um, insecure about their own knowledge in this area. And so they're like, I don't know if I, I should teach them because do I know everything there is to know or am I going to tell them the wrong things? Do I have the right advice for them? And I think, you know, having a tool like this that you can work through together, there's nothing wrong with learning alongside your kids. You know, so many mums have said to me, I'm going to read it too and I'm sure I'll learn something or I don't know how super well, I learn stuff from it. You know, <laughs> exactly. So there's a lot, of, um, a lot of that. And I think also, you know, it's actually particularly with teenagers, you know, admitting to them that you don't know everything and being a bit vulnerable and saying, hey, let's learn about super together. I don't really understand it either. You know, is a, it's, a, you know, it's something that can bring you together. So I think that that opportunity is there for parents as well. But, you know, back to your point about your meeting with the financial advisor, I think that, you know, one of the problems with the, with the financial services system that we have in Australia and most Western countries is that it does seem to you know, come with this this burden of shame that you should know, you always feel like you should know more than you do know. And I think that that's a really big problem um, that, you know, everyone just needs to be really honest about what they do and don't know and, and feel like it's okay to admit that and then, and then learn because, you know, it's okay not to have learned about it. Lots of people didn't. Um, if your parents aren't equipped with the tools or school didn't teach you, how are you supposed to know? Exactly. Now, I love this term that I've seen coined on your social media that you are now a finfluencer, a financial <laughs> influencer. I love that. So let's talk the nitty gritty. You've written this nonfiction book, A Guide for Teenagers. How do you tackle a subject that's as heavy as finances and make it accessible for that age group? Well, it look, <laughs> it was a challenge, you know, I've got to tell you. Um, I mean, I think as you said in the intro, I've been writing about money 
Um, my background is a journalist, as a business journalist. Um, so I've been writing about money for my whole career. Um, a lot of it, you know, in the first part of my career, probably more for people who knew about finances and, and were already in that world. And then I suppose in the more recent years, a bit more about um, sort of your basic consumer education sort of stuff. So I, I feel like I got a really good grounding in how to explain this stuff as simply as you can. And, and I mean, the unfortunate reality with some of it is it's still really complicated, even when you try and break it down really simply. But I think um, my editors at Firm Press would definitely be be uh, be backing me when I say that the the book that we've produced is probably not what my first draft looked like. Uh, so I think I had a really clear vision of, of what we needed to cover. And I think my first draft um, was very much, I took the approach of a journalist. So it was really well-researched and fact-checked, um, but it was probably a little bit too stilted, a little bit too formal, maybe not quite engaging enough, maybe not quite casual enough almost. Um, despite you know the best efforts of my daughters to kind of point that out to me and and you know I think having having the lens of of an editor there who interestingly didn't have a huge amount of personal finance knowledge herself actually really um, pushed me to to just think about am I explaining this as clearly as I possibly can you know could I provide an example here you know paint a picture that picture tells a thousand words you know you know, so that's how we've ended up with a lot of things in the book, like lots of case studies, um, lots of infographics. Um, so anywhere that we could say it without, you know, slabs of text, we really tried to because I think that, you know, we've got quizzes in there for the teenagers. Um, we've got sort of little breakout boxes with tips and hints and and we ended up even, you know, in the in the final iteration, probably the third draft it was with, with coming up with these four characters in the book. And, I mean, it's, it sounds they strange to have Kelly there, which actually they now that I'm, I'm saying it like people have seen it. So the book is based around four different girls who each have different goals, different life situations, different ages, and they ask questions about their finances. And they were not in the first draft. Wow. So, you know, this is this is the, the, the magic of bringing, you know, I guess a subject matter expert like me together with people who are experts in publishing and in storytelling in a different way. And so that that we sort of brainstormed that to come up with a way that, you know, and it seems strange in a nonfiction book and it, it initially seemed strange to me, this idea of having characters, that um, these personas that, that popped up through the book. And, you know, because it kind of, it kind of went against everything I thought a nonfiction book was in a way, but they can tell the story and they can be so much more relatable, I think, to an ab than an abstract notion can be. So, yeah, we've got four characters, four girls, as you say, really different dreams for the future, different career paths or, or not even sure of their career paths, different ages, different spending habits, different ethnicities, you know, as, as, as different as you can get. And, and, and as you say, they pop up and ask questions that girls would be asking when they're reading this book, they'd be saying, hey, but what about this? Or have you thought of this? Or when I get to this, what do I do? And so having them um, just helps us, I guess, frame a lot of the information in, in a, from a different perspective or in a different way. But, yes, they were definitely not in the first draft. <laughs> wow. So let's talk, I guess, the, the nitty-gritty of the publishing process. We actually, I don't mm. think I have spoken to a non-fiction person yet so you're our first cab off the rank if I unless yeah. my memory is failing me 
How did the publishing contract come to be? Did you pitch to a firm or were you approached? So, so I came up with the idea um, and we'll, we should really talk about where that germinated, but we'll come to that hopefully a little later. No, go and, to that first if you want. Tell us Oh, well, okay. So um, I, guess, I guess, you know, to take you back to the very beginning, we're back at the beginning of 2021 and there was a lot going on in Australia to do with gender politics Um, So you had, you know, Grace Tame as Australian of the Year using that platform to really call call power to account, if you like, and um, the Brittany Higgins story had broken in in, about, you know, her experience in Parliament House. And I guess the other one that resonated with me that that some other people might have missed was Chanel Consos was doing her um, survey into the sexual uh, abuse, essentially, that that teenage girls had received growing up in, in high school at the hands of of teenage boys and so it just really I just actually got quite depressed about it and quite upset about it all initially because I was like you know how are we still here you know we've had first wave feminism we've had second wave feminism we've had women trying to be it all and do it all and you know my generation I feel like well for me personally I I was a you know very um diehard feminist was never going to get married have kids you know rely on men do any of that kind of stuff I was going to be this amazing independent woman and you know it's not to say that I'm not and I'm not disparaging you know any kind of alternative choices at all and you know I've ended up married with three kids and you know living a fairly traditional life that I never thought I would and I think I you know I had these two teenage daughters and I thought wow they're pretty much just going to going into exactly the same world that I grew up in and how can we still be here you know 20 years on from when I was a teenager and maybe more and how can we still be facing the same problems and getting nowhere and then I you know sort of thought well what can I do I'm just you know I'm just me I'm just a person what 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 skill what knowledge do I have and the more that I thought about the power imbalances that were behind so much of these gender politics between men and women I thought so much of this comes back to money with women you know, we just we just don't have the financial security uh, as a as a a whole gender. You know, to be able to really take control. And I thought, well, that's maybe something I can do. You know, that's something I know about. I know about money, and maybe maybe the contribution I can make to this debate is is to give give the next generation um, a bit of bit of knowledge before they emerge into the world about this stuff, and maybe they'll find themselves you know, asking for more right from the very beginning. So that was where it started. So I had this idea and I, I, I get quite excited about my ideas. So, you know, I thought, oh, it was, you, you know, this is, this is a goer. This is going to be great. And I emailed a friend of mine who I've known since high school, who's a, an amazing woman called Simone, who, who runs a marketing agency that um, specializes in reaching women audiences. And I said to her, well, Simone, what do you think? I've had this, had this idea. And she said, oh my God, I love it. And I've got to tell you, if I've felt I think if I've gotten a different response from Simone, I might have gone, oh, never mind. You know, it's one of those crazy but unrealistic scenarios. So, you know, that was the moment where I went, okay, okay, great. So then I did, you know, as I said, I've been a journalist, but I've never really thought about writing a book, um, what goes into writing a book, how you go about writing a book, how you go about getting a publishing contract. I I did a bit of research around self-publishing versus traditional publishing, I, you know, literally did what every journalist did. I researched. So I Googled, (laughs) 
you know, little things like how to get a publishing contract, how does nonfiction publishing work, what does what do you have to supply to pitch to publishers and things like that. I got onto all the mainstream publisher websites and looked at if they took pictures and, you know, was there a certain day or how do you approach them? Do you need an agent? You name it. I researched it all. And what I discovered, um, I've got to say, I was pleased to discover was that with a nonfiction book, you don't need to provide a full written manuscript from beginning to end because I know that's that's the case with fiction. (laughs) And I was like, right, so I can just put together what is essentially a pitch document, which is, you know, still going to be a considerable amount of work, but not the kind of work that writing an entire manuscript is. And, um, and then there'll either be a yes or a no, essentially, and then I can do the writing part. So I was like, great. So I obviously had to, to put together my pitch, research, you know, who's my target reader, um, what competitors exist in this space, what other books are out there, who I think the book buyer is, which in this case I think it's very much, you know, el- older women in these teenage girls' lives. I'm not under the illusion that teenage girls are going to walk into a bookstore and say, oh, money book. Yes, you know, there might be some, but, you know, that's certainly probably not the the mass um, buyer, you know, it's more likely to be their mum, their auntie, their godmother, their grandmother who says, yes, this is a book that we, you know, will be really useful for you. So I did um, I sort of put together a synopsis, if you'd like, with a whole bunch of market research. And then so I had this document and I started pitching it off, you know, just sending it in blind to, to the various email addresses that were supplied on some publisher's website. I thought, well, you just put it in and you see what happens and will something come back ever? ever? And um, and then I got another email from Simone and she said, I've been thinking about this some more and I've got a friend who works in publishing who might be interested. Let me, you know, speak to her. And so this was Tash Beslev, who's the, the children's publisher at a firm. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay, great. Well, that's amazing. Obviously. This is a great contact to have. Oh, amazing, amazing. And it's, it's just, a, you know, one of those serendipitous things, I suppose. And, um, you know, I'd never heard really of a firm before. Then I probably read some of their authors, definitely, because I'm quite an avid reader. But, well, but, I don't think you, know, you take they, note of publishers until you, you are wanting to get published. I think that's very true. So, um, so you know, then I, I did a bit more research into them, research again, and I realised that, you know, kind of publishing books that that have a have a a, a powerful um, message or a, a cause is is one of their sort of core um, platforms, I suppose, or or things that they like to do. And I sort of thought, well, wow, maybe we could be a good fit. And it's funny, you know, Tash um, put together a speech for my book launch, and she said, you know, as a publisher, you get these emails all the time. You know, I've got a friend who's written who wants to write a book or who's written. She said, most of the time you're just thinking, how can I politely say no to this email? <laughs> but she just said that she read the, the little snippet that Simone had sent her, which was from the email that I sent Simone, and she said, I just loved it immediately. It just the, it hit the chord. I could feel the passion and the anger that you were feeling coming off the page. And I realised there was nothing out there. And she probably had, I think, the same reaction that as we started this conversation with that so many grown-up women have, which is where was this book when I was a teenager? So um, it sort of went from there. We, she, she was up, I live in Sydney and she's in Melbourne, so she was up in Sydney for, um, for another meeting and I think attending an awards night or something. So we met for lunch and, you know, got along like a house on fire and, you know, she said, well, I love it and I want to pitch it to the team. And I said, well, great, fantastic. Let me know how it goes and if you need anything from me. And um, and we took it from there. The team the team bought in and, you know, the next thing I knew I had a publishing contract and I was sort of slightly stunned. 
Wow. So how does it work from there when you aren't having to provide a whole manuscript up front, you're pitching Mm -hmm. instead? How much time did you have to pull everything together? So that was probably about May, June last year that we signed uh, the contract. And then I, my first draft was um, due in early December. So I had, I guess I, I probably really started writing realistically in July. So about five months to, to write um, the manuscript, which came in at around 35,000 words, I think. So I just very much broke it down like probably any journalist would into, you know, chapters of or, or even chapters and then subtopics within chapters and this is a thousand words and this is a thousand words and, you know, that made it feel less overwhelming. Um, although it's funny, you know, uh, as I had mentioned to you, I had my book launch the other night and unfortunately with COVID, you know, surging again, there were quite a few people that were unable to attend. And I, I made a remark there that it was really ironic because without COVID and the lockdown that we had in Sydney last year for about 10 weeks, I probably would not have met that met that first draft deadline. You know, that's freed up my life so much. You know, I've got three kids. Life is pretty busy. Um, I didn't have to drop anyone to school. I didn't have to pick them up from school. I didn't have to take them to after-school activities. We didn't have to do weekend sport. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, basically. And were you still juggling it, though, around were you having to do homeschooling and working as well? Yeah, look, I was. I mean, you know, the the, the beauty of having two older girls is that they were pretty self-sufficient um, and they'd be in their rooms and they'd be on Zooms with their teachers for every subject and they were pretty good. I had my 10-year-old son sitting next to me at a long desk. I had my noise-cancelling headphones on and I said, look, if you need to interrupt me and ask a question, do, but, you know, just choose your moments. Don't ask me everything. Don't be a typical 10-year-old and ask me every little thought bubble that pops into your mind. Um, but he was very, very good about it, actually. And I just, you know, I'd start at 7 in the morning and I'd, I'd stop at 7 at night and I'd kind of just write. And, you know, it was amazing because I think I was so passionate about the topic and, and the reason why I was writing the book and what I was trying to do. Though, though it never seemed hard. It never really seemed like a chore which was um when I look back on it now kind of quite amazing yeah so when you went into that editorial process and you say things changed quite drastically from that first draft you're a Mm. journalist you're used to quite quick feedback and quick turnaround times and obviously things are a lot slower in publishing was it a did did a firm hold your hand through the editorial process and kind of give you things to consider or was it a this isn't working in this way how can you fix it type thing yeah no they were so good about it um the most nervous moments were probably you know I'd send in a draft and it'd sort of be a week or two and they'd take their time to look over it and formulate their thoughts and I'd be thinking do they like it do they hate it (laughs) what have I done um but I think um everything was very much framed as this is a suggestion. We think this would work, but it's ultimately your call. It's your book. So, for example, they they were keen at one point on moving some of the gender and money stuff towards the back of the book, and I was really adamant that that needed to be kept quite early on in the book because it really was the reason for mm-hmm. it being a girl's book um, or, or framed as a girl's book. So, you know, that was that was one. I think, though, 
you know, some of the ideas like the characters, which definitely came from them, was was brilliant. So they totally held my hand through the process. Um, my editor, Coral, and I worked really closely together, um, bouncing ideas back and forth off each other. And it really was a, a collaborative process in terms of um, there was definitely no one saying you must change this or, you know, you must move this section. I mean, in the end, we ended up with a book that was too long and we had to had to look at, look at some bits to trim down, um, which is probably a better problem to have than trying to, to bulk <laughs> things out. Um, and I think, you know, originally we talked about 25,000 words. I think I delivered 35 and I think we ended up at around 32 or something like that. So, um, so yeah, that, look, they were, they, were, they were amazing to work with, I've got to say. And actually, you know, I guess I felt like the process was taking quite a long time, but in hindsight, to go from, think it was probably about March or April last year to have the idea and I think it went to press in about March this year that's a pretty quick turnaround from Definitely what everyone tells really me. quick <laughs> so it felt like a long time for me but but apparently that's that's pretty quick so I think you know I to me I just wanted the book out there the day after I had the idea <laughs> it couldn't happen soon enough in my mind you know girls needed help and they needed it now um so it's been uh, definitely a test of patience waiting, but I think all in all it was a pretty pretty quick process. Can I get you to share one of the big tips from the book with us for people who, I guess they're probably tips that even if you're not a teenager, I'm certainly not, um, you can apply now or if people are raising kids, what they should be thinking about. Thinking about. Um, I think, look, the when it comes to the gender and money things, I think one of the really important things um, for teenage girls and to talk about is financial abuse. I think that's a really uh, big one. So we've talked, you know, in this conversation a little bit about the gender pay gap and the, the gender retirement gap, but I think financial abuse, um, you know, the statistics say that women are twice as likely than men to be victims of financial abuse and young women that don't know about money are a particular sort of high, one of the high-risk groups and this is, you know, financial abuse can range from someone influencing your decisions about money to someone sort of blatantly using your money, you know, stealing from you if you like. But I think um, the way that it can be wrapped up in relationships and, and coercive control and, you know, it, it really is a gateway, um, you know, statistics show it's sort of a gateway abuse to then physical abuse and other, other sorts of more, not more serious, they're all serious, but, you know, other types of abuse. I think that understanding about financial abuse as a teenager is really important and it's it's one of those conversations that I think you know probably a lot of parents aren't going to be comfortable having because you know it's serious and it's heavy um and it it's but it's those serious and heavy topics that that people and you know that kids that sometimes are the most important I think um so just understanding what it is and how to avoid it, things like always being in control of your money, not sharing passwords, not giving other people your card to use, um, making sure that if you are, say, moving in with a partner that you discuss beforehand, how you're going to split the bills, how you're going to pay the, the mortgage or the rent, um, are you going to have your own accounts, are you going to merge accounts, just, you know, making money um, something that is a is as part a part of everyday conversation as it is a part of everyday life you know a lot of people I think of older generations maybe grew up with this idea that that it wasn't polite to talk about money or, or it was a bit of a you know 
not a source of shame, but a, maybe a lack of knowledge was a source of shame, but, you know, it just wasn't something you, you talked about. And I think the more we talk about it, the better, to be perfectly honest. Right. Michelle, just to finish up, we obviously have a lot of writers who are listening that are wanting to know about getting their own books published. Your biggest tip in terms of pitching a nonfiction book, what did you, other than having a really good contact, what did you do in your pitch that you think made it stand out? I think um, I think apart from having contacts, which is obviously not, not, not there for everyone, I think having a unique idea. So the first thing I would say to anybody is, you know, research the market. What else has been done in, in that area? You know, I think to some extent this was a little bit of a no-brainer because this book had not been written. There is no book, other book out there like this. So there was a gap in the market. So if you can find a gap, if you can find, particularly if you can find a gap that's linked to um, a moment in time, I suppose, or, you know, what we call in journalism the news hook, you know, all of this gender stuff was very newsy at the point in time that I was pitching. So, you know, it, it was relevant, I think, and so that, you know, a firm could see, they could see the market, they could see that there would be buyers, they could identify who those buyers would be. The other thing I think um, that probably set it apart was show passion. You know, I I think that that Tash really felt the passion leaping out of my pitch. Um, you know, it wasn't a clinical, you know, it was a very well-researched and sort of well-documented pitch, but but it was passionate. You know, I definitely put, put a lot of passion into the, my explanation of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, the reasons I felt that it was important, the reasons I felt it would sell, and, you know, she, I think she, she invested in that passion as much as anything. She sort of thought, yes, you know, Michelle so wants this to succeed that it's really not a risk to do this. So I'm not going to not, she's not going to flake out and not deliver at the first draft or she's, she's not going to kind of get to the point of publication where we are now and, and not be willing to do any of the marketing commitments or the promotional commitments that it takes to, you know, really drive books along. So I think, you know, not being afraid to, to really show that you're really passionate about your book um, because they're investing in you as much as they're investing in your idea or your concept. So that would be my other tip, I think. Well, you certainly delivered. Money Queens is fabulous. I highly recommend it to anyone, not just if you've got teenage daughters, but also just for yourself to read. I definitely enjoyed it myself. Michelle Bose, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Sinead. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening to the Writers of the Page podcast. Make sure you check out the back catalogue and while you're there, I'd love it if you left a rating or review. It helps other people discover the podcast. If there's an author you want me to chat to or you just want to say hi, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Shanae Maripodi. That's C-H-E-N-E-E. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.